Hello, my name's Adam Spring, and this is a Remotely Interested podcast, hosted at remotely-interested.com. So, my rebellious band of remotely interested listeners, it's been a while, and there's been a few reasons for that. One, I've been busy, and two, I've been racking up the content, but also three... One of the interesting things about this podcast has always been that it's been a flexible format. And since I've been doing this, you know, it's evolved over time. I've had uh, co-presenters come in. I've had co-presenters go. And now, again, a listener reached out to me and they were like, why haven't you done any more? And I'm like, uh, I just haven't had time. So now we have a new co-host and that co-host is Ravi Abbott. Ravi, how are you doing? I'm good, Adam. I really love your podcast and I've been listening to some kind of previous episodes and there's some really interesting content on there. Well, thank you very much. So before we talk about me, because I know you want me to talk about me, let's talk a little bit about you. So tell me, you know, a little bit about your background and um, why you wanted to be part of Remotely Interested. Yeah, so um, I'm currently on a podcast called The Retro Hour. Now, we do uh, gaming and we talk about retro games. We have interviews with people every week and I really love the interviewing. Uh, I think it's one of the favourite parts of the podcast and uh, that's a weekly one so that will be out quite more regularly than this but I find that I want to explore a bit more because we're, we're, we're limited to around an hour's worth of time and that kind of means that we have to get all this information shoved in with an hour um, I think it's going to be really nice kind of working with you because we can sit down and listen to the interviews together and then go through them at the end and it could be like if you get an interview you know, I could get one in England and we yep. can use both countries to kind of benefit the podcast and really help people learn. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that I started this podcast because there's an element to me where I'm a communicator and I'm a connector and I've done a lot of stuff, whether it's uh, peer review publications, industry publications, videos so to me podcasting was another media and another way of reaching people and one of the things that i found from doing this which may be a little bit different to your podcast because you know for the listeners you and i we've known each other for a long period of time and i knew about the retro hour before it even came about in fact you referenced me on episode one for example and one of the things that was unexpected and i think is slightly different with this podcast to the one that you've got is that there's a broad spectrum of people that you can talk to, but also when you're getting information from them and even editing it back, there's stuff that sticks with you along the way and you find interconnecting points in things that are otherwise disconnected. People I've had on here have been people that have designed some of the 3D laser scanning technologies I work with, as well as you know people like John Matheson who designed the Atari Jaguar for example a video game console that you know you and I know well from back in the day as we say yeah and uh, it's it's very interesting because i've i've kind of found that similar pattern because uh, we've done uh, around 130 interviews now so there's a lot of similar themes that you start to see and it's stuff like you know stick at stick at what you're good at and really kind of focus on that and there's other stuff like you know if, if you're trying to work for someone to achieve something, um, don't kind of go for their goals. Maybe get some satisfaction out of it yourself. And if you've got more enjoyment of a project, then you're going to be more into it and it's it's going to be more successful. So, like, I, I can see a lot of these themes crossing over. And the idea of remotely interested, it seems really good because even, even the name behind it, you just kind of, 
it, it could be a subject that you're just remotely interested in, but you'll find out more information. Well, you can't really argue with it, can you? You know, so that's the way it goes. So I've been listening to the podcast and uh, I noticed one thing, Adam. You haven't actually told the guys about yourself. Um, You're talking to a lot of people, but um, we don't really know your history. And I think that would be really interesting to talk about. Yeah, um, I think one of the reasons for that is obviously I started, when this started, I think it was in 2014 with Trevor... It, there was a co-host element to it. And then when I went out on my own, um, and that was simply because he moved, it wasn't really anything. There was no drama there. You, you can, it's hard to talk about yourself, you know? Um, yeah. I'm not really an egotistical person. Um, but for me, and I think this is where a lot of similarities between you and I come in, is my formative years in technology. Because the way I would describe this podcast, it's a podcast about technology, people, and the intersection between technology, people, and culture. And for me, I think it's very similar to you, my formative years with technology was from around about 1985 to 1995 in the UK, where I think, looking back on it, and having moved countries, now living in the US, we were very spoiled in the sense that we had an island culture going on. So basically, it was easy to transmit information. But also, I think British people in general were a nation of tinkerers. So, so the whole idea of kind of British computing and stuff uh, and old British companies were really, we'll do everything ourselves. So there was a famous machine that was uh, created in the 70s called uh, the Leo. And that was actually made by Lion's Tea because oh, they really? wanted to uh, automate their office. So they said, why don't we just build this huge computer system and do it ourselves? And that, that was the kind of DIY, do it yourself philosophy in the UK at the time. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think, so, you know, some of the people that you've had on your podcast, like the people behind From Bedrooms to Billions, I think one of the key things for that first film, and, I, you know, I do think the first film is worth a watch. The other ones are kind of like, meh. I don't, I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but they're just, they're not as good as the first one. Um, the key thing I think that came out of that, and they, they emphasize very well, is transistor radios were kind of instrumental in the 50s and 60s for laying the groundwork for that tinkering mentality, if you look at someone like Sir Clive Sinclair or anybody around that Cambridge scene, it wasn't just about the fact that you had a very strong university presence with a long computing presence and, you know, Turing and stuff like that. It was also the fact that you had a core of people that weren't afraid to explore using stuff in a way that maybe you weren't or you wouldn't in a structured environment like a university. And I think tying back to my podcasts, if you listen to part one of Lee Felsenstein's stuff and part two, we've still got in the can, so we will put out at some point, the Homebrew Computer Club, they were not liked by the establishment. You know, oh, they yeah. were people that, you know, the Altair uh, 8800, that was run by a chip that was designed primarily for calculators and things like traffic lights. They repurposed stuff. But well, the, these were kind of members of the public playing with machines that were meant for military or that, you know, they were developing something that was totally different. And I, I love that you mentioned radio as well, because I'm a massive radio nut. And, you know, some of the earliest radio transmissions were done across the Atlantic, but also they had a huge anti-establishment history of uh, pirate yep. radio in the UK as well, which was another kind of technology developed from uh, kind of playing with something that we're not allowed to yep. play with. And I guess, you know, an equivalent over here would be, but slightly different, would be blue boxes and, you know, hacking old phone lines like the early Apple guys did, like, you know, Steve Jobs and Wozniak did. 
similar kind of rebellion. You were in this kind of British hackery playing around, uh, lots of crazy systems kind of computer upbringing. Um, then you went off to university. Uh, what, what did you study? So essentially my pathway was always going to be either my love of the past, which, you know, archaeology is what I ended up getting all my qualifications in, or going off and doing computer game design. And it's interesting because now I kind of feel like I'm at a point where I could kind of enter back into that video game world on that angle, on the back end, through the 3D imaging stuff that I do. Um, but essentially all of my qualifications were in archaeology. But then, by accident, not really by design, I ended up going back down that computing route by becoming involved with uh, a type of technology called 3D laser scanning, particularly in the mid-range where you're dealing with things like buildings. And I got into that through the inscribed stone surfaces in my uh, home county of Cornwall. There are a lot of them around. And one of the problems you have with a lot of these early medieval stones is the surfaces are heavily worn, particularly in Cornwall because it's granite. So it's weathered granite that was, you know, carvings yeah. with crude sort of axes from like the 8th and 9th century. And for me, it was a way of potentially getting rid of the subjectivity associated with those axes, um, with those stones, sorry. So that's how I started getting into it. And then from there, really, it just, it spiraled. I mean, I went from doing stuff in the UK to laser scanning Knossos in Greece, which is the second most busiest site after the Acropolis, done work in Albania. I, it basically, it took me all over the world. And, you know, I met I met my wife through basically what I did, you know, and what I do. But then the funny thing was, it kind of came full circle one day when I'd moved over here and Rebecca, that's my wife, she turned around to me. She's like, you're not going to like me saying this. I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, but I'm pretty certain that all those computers and video game consoles are the reason why you got into what you're doing now. And I'm like, I'm insulted by the fact you think that I'd be insulted by that. So, you know, <laughs> it's absolutely 100%, you know. I mean, I think one of the things I've always done is I've followed my interests. And yeah. the people that I've met through doing that, it's always taken me in the direction where I've needed to go. And that's on a subconscious level, it's not conscious. For example, you know, you and I know each other through a blog post that I wrote back in... 2013 on the Amiga computer I was living in a very yeah. um, how do I put it sheltered I will say for want of a politically correct term part of America whereby I wasn't just the only Brit I was the only one of the only foreigners right so there was a big cultural divide there and one day I was in my office because you know when you can't look outward you got to look inward sometimes and I was looking down at my Amiga 1200 and I was like well I haven't really visited you in a while so Rebecca was away on business for a couple of days so I actually just stayed in the house, surrounded myself by 80s, 90s British culture in the background. I had like Sylvester McCoy, Doctor Who playing and just did oh, this nice. blog post on the Amiga. And then that got around about 10,000 hits in the space of like two days. And yeah. you and your co-presenter, Dan Wood, for the Retro Hour, that's how I got to know you guys because you were one of the few people actually doing decent content on YouTube of Amiga stuff. It was your interview with Trevor Dickinson, who now does the AEON stuff, and the 4000 stuff that was some of the yeah. first stuff that i seen for you. And then Dan's stuff on, you know, Amiga owners in 2011, I think was a video that caught me the most. Well, one thing was that you mentioned was uh, basically laser scanning. And I, I find this very interesting because I've always been interested in different technologies like space, you know, satellite, um, 
any kind of radio, uh, long wave radio and all the kind of amateur bands and everything like that. But um, laser scanning was something very different because uh, I, I knew nothing about it. And then you sent me to a laser scanning conference and it was so much fun. I really didn't expect it to be like that exciting, but it's it's really on the edge of kind of being integrated with virtual reality. It seems like it's on the edge of a, a kind of a cusp of a, a new new technology and a new kind of way of integrating it with different stuff and displaying the pieces as well and new accuracy as well. I'd, you know, I, I'd see geographers on the street with these big things in the kind of 90s and think, what's he doing? Why is he stood there for 10 hours? <laughs> you know, <laughs> but now I, I can see it and it really, really seems like they're... Um, something that, that that can progress very well and very quickly at the moment yeah uh, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that uh, conference that i sent you to uh the largest conference in the uk is called geo because that was that and basically bringing you in on some website stuff that we're doing for an educational program uh, more on that in the future when it's released um you know it, to me it was kind of bringing two worlds together that i thought initially were otherwise disconnected but they definitely weren't and I think the, the key thing about laser scanning, so the type of laser scanning, as I mentioned, that I do is, well, really, I can work with anything from as small as, say, a tooth, so on a micron level, to anything as big as a landscape, which can be captured in terms of, of meters, you know? Um, so I'm not restricted. There are people that see themselves as siloed, but I've never been, because I've always been so curious about the technology and its application. Um, but I think the key thing about laser scanning is it gives you the ability to create a digital mold of whatever you are capturing. But the thing to remember about it is the accuracy, uh, precision and resolution at which you're collecting the information and what goes into those processes. Uh, a 3D laser scan itself represents uh, something called a point cloud, which if you think of a photograph where it has an X and a Y coordinate, so it's on a 2D plane, this is basically creating a 3D photograph is essentially the way to look at it. And you mentioned the accuracy there as well. Like... Not many things in the world you can say this is fully accurate, but uh, laser scanning is it like ninety nine percent accurate or something? Well, I mean, so that it's all relative because there's a strong element to it that's to do with the the user, right? The, the struggle between the user and the manufacturer in the sense that you can have, say, a time of flight system. So the two main ways of getting a laser scan based point cloud is either through uh, something called time of flight where you're sending out a beam and basically the time it takes to get back to the system roughly and the pulse rate uh, is how you get the 3D image. Um, and ah, then, very much like when they put a mirror on the moon yeah, and they bounce the laser off absolutely. that and then use that to measure the distance. Yep, absolutely. It's absolutely tied in with that. That's one of the earliest examples. And then the other one is basically phase shift, which is you... So if you think of basically like Star Trek, and you think of when something's cloaked and yeah. it's not cloaked, it's in and out of phase with its surroundings. That's basically... Oh, thanks for using Star Trek yeah, references. Well, it's, I totally get that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, back in the day, so, you know, I got into this in 2006, and I'm, I'm classed as an early adopter, which I always kind of find funny because there are blaggers in this community, and I'm not one of them. I'm just very honest. But I am an early adopter, I guess, to give myself some credit. Basically, in the early days, it was more difficult to explain phase shift than it was time of flight, because time of flight is relatively easy. It's a pulse beam and the time in which it comes back. But with phase shift, what you're yeah. looking at is the difference between the signal going out and the signal coming back. 
So that's why the Star Trek analogy is a good visualization because if you think of something like, you know, uh, was it, it was a Klingon cloaking device, when it's when you can't see it, it's because it, it's out of phase with its surroundings. And when you can see it, it's in phase. So that's that's kind of the way to look at it. But both of those systems are called time-based measurement systems because you're looking at time differences overall to give you the accuracy and the precision. And that's uh, with laser scanning. That's why I use the term accuracy, precision, and resolution because that's what's going into the parameters of that 3D image that you're collecting. And it has so many different implications. That was the thing. I was sitting there and I was looking at some of the technology and they had, you know, for a start, they had... um kind of it was the 3d aerial images they'd had from satellites yep. and they had ancient maps and you can kind of look through the layers of maps and i thought that was great because it was like google maps with about 30 layers <laughs> underneath rather than uh, just your street view or your aerial shot but also i just thought of stuff like event management oh absolutely you know if you yep. were scanning an area and looking for the flow of people in a certain area you you could recreate scenarios recreate disasters uh, recreate buildings collapsing and use it for really good safety yeah and it that's actually a very good example i mean stadiums as well for example the mercedes-benz stadium uh, which you know you went to when we seen atlanta united win the mls cup that you could capture most of it within one scan depending on what you needed you can basically put the scanner in the middle of the stadium and in one sweep you would get a lot of detail because essentially the image that you're getting returned is all about line of sight. And when you're basically actively getting a laser hitting a surface, as long as it can get the information off of it, then you're golden. So essentially anything like that, people flow and yeah, it's a very versatile tool. Uh, in robotics, it, this is a term that I probably like the most to describe it they refer to it as the object environment because when you're doing things like laser scanning or computer vision the environment becomes an object right anything like yeah. surface reflectance uh the shape of an object for example what i would call firm geometry something like a table or a couch is going to be better to uh, create an overall registered point cloud so when you go from position to position you can actually use the overlap of different point clouds to create one overall point cloud of an environment. So when you've got firm geometry in that environment, typically it's better than um, having softer, you know, irregular surfaces. So think of like, you know, uh, uh, things like a, a mound of gravel or, you know, anything that's soft and squidgy and things like that, you know, that would be a mess. Yeah, and all, and all this, I guess, relates to kind of like, everything that people are trying to do today at the moment like augmented reality virtual reality they're all creating objects in there well i mean i think i think the uh you know there was a an Huffington post uh, article that sticks with me that was by sir clive sinclair i think it was around about 216 217 and he talks about retro as the new new i think one of the thing one of the problems you have with technologies and one of the things that's been really interesting from doing this podcast, and I'm sure you've had the same with the retro, is the ideas remain the same. It's just the the thing that you're doing changes, right? And it's that old quote of those who don't, you know, look to the past are doomed to repeat it. I think a lot of this stuff, particularly around the AR and the VR space, you look around about the mid-90s, you had video gaming trying to push that space. You had things like... Yeah. You know, the Virtual Boy from Nintendo, you had 
a system that was going to come out potentially on the Mega Drive stroke Genesis that never did, and the same with the Atari Jaguar. And obviously you had the virtuality with the Amiga. You know what amazes me? I I think nowadays it's uh, how easy and how willing people are to kind of drop a technology and move oh, on yeah, to something that they see as the new thing and completely abandon all the old foundation of ideas and stuff like that. You well, know? I think that's one of the really interesting things that I've had since moving to the US, you know, because San Francisco I've spent a lot of time in and I do love the Bay Area, but I've now lived here enough where I remember the last time that I was over there for Dev Week, blockchain was the latest thing. And I've never heard the term blockchain mentioned so much, but whenever you wanted to talk to somebody about what it meant, they didn't have a clue, most of them. And I think that's... Yeah, yeah, it was like the hype yeah. word, wasn't You know, it? I mean, yeah. that's the thing. It's sort of, there's, an, there's a knowledge economy and just, I guess, a hype cycle is probably what you would call it. Kondratiev's wave is another one. Yeah, yeah. it's strange because I, I really didn't think, you know, in 2019 that I'd be using um, Discord which yeah. is exactly kind of like IRC or like a forum, you know, or or Twitter would still not be able to handle real-time video. It has to be a third-party third add-on. If you want to do real-time text, that's still all that Twitter can kind of process in real time. And it's like, you know, we, we, we're, we're still quite far behind, but I just think things get repackaged and sold as a, as a new technology. Well, I think... One of the things that I've learned from talking to a lot of different people about this stuff, and I would say one of the things I really value about being in the US is some of the real seasoned developers that I've met. You know, whether it's a very good friend of mine who designed the first laser scanner that I ever used, or whether it was somebody like uh, Dave Needle, who was somebody that designed, you know, had a very strong hand in designing the Amiga, the Atari Lynx handout and the 3DO is when you talk to people like that, you really do get an idea of just how hard it is to develop something, but also as well, it takes a certain mindset. I had a conversation with a friend of mine that works in a Canadian university a few weeks ago, and I'm like, most of the products we use today, why do you think they don't come out of universities? And you know, his response was basically, it just you can't you know i mean the entire structure of a university is not set up to innovating and then you meet people like dave needle and my other friend and it's just they just think in a different way right i mean it, you know yeah. you, again it comes back to that thing about tinkering well you know you talk about dave needle there and he was a absolute excellent guy and you know you you managed to get an interview with him before he sadly uh, passed away um you've got quite a lot of interviews like a, a good history with remotely interested uh, which ones would you say your favorites are and um, why so i mean dave's is probably the overall one because it was a complete accident it was done on a 30 dollar olympus uh dictaphone um on a like an old it wasn't even a smartphone this was when i was writing an article that ended up coming out in ieee annals of the history of computing on the amiga uh, particularly, you know, on retrospective computing and how user communities can keep something going alive. Um, that's probably my favorite one. And I think the reason why is, one, because Dave and I accidentally became good friends towards the end of his life. Dave and RJ Michael ended up working together and they created a lot on the Amiga. You know, um, RJ was responsible for the intuition yep. on Amiga. But then also they went off and created the, um, with Epics, they created the Lynx. 
So, you know, there's there's a lot of history of those two as a team. Yeah, and I think the interesting thing about that story in general is and the Amiga 30th event in 2015 in California, which I went to, was kind of telling for this because a lot of new information came out, is it wasn't just necessarily the both of them that travelled on to those projects, but also other people within that community of Amiga developers, you know, like Carl Sassenraff, Dale uh, Luck, and Glenn Keller. They all worked on the uh, what became the Lynx, the Handy, and the 3DO as well, as did Stan Shepard. So it wasn't just uh, some of them, it's basically a lot of them carried on, right? Because you're working with your friends. I mean, if you meet any of those guys, and I think this is its a good point to make because I think it's, it's relevant in terms of bridging the gap between, you know, discussing me and the stuff about laser scanning and, you know, the, my formative years with technology. If you meet any of those guys, it's very clear that the guy, you know, that was primarily behind it, Jay Minor and also Dave Morse actually, you know, those two guys, they were very good at picking people that were not just work colleagues, they were friends as well. And that goes into a product, you know. A lot of people tend to think that, yeah. whether it's a computer or a laser scanner, that there's a sterility to product development. There really isn't. There is an element of people's personalities and what they see as needing to go into the product and that struggle between bringing something out that actually shapes it. I remember... I ended up having a meeting with uh, somebody involved with Project Tango. In fact, it was somebody that was key to Project Tango, which was their Google attempt at their 3D imaging tablet. And it was funny because Dave actually worked on the power supply for the Project Tango. So I ended up going to this uh, conversation with this guy with a load of prototypes mm. in my hand, basically like gave it back to the secretary at Google. Here you go. Here's, oh. here's the prototypes for these Project Tango. And within five seconds of walking into the room, it was very clear that it wasn't going to work because it was a group of individuals trying to work as a collective. And there was, I mean, I won't go into it in too much detail because I'm too professional, but when you meet the people behind a product, you get a better sense of it and what goes mm. into it, you know? Let's, let's hear from Dave and you can probably tell his uh, passion behind his work here. This was our family. We ate together, we went on trips together, we went river rafting, we did amazing, fun stuff together. We lived in those offices. There were times during the crunch that we slept at the office and our wives came and brought clothes and food. Uh, and they joined in, in the work and in the joy of this creation. It was so amazingly close. Uh, most of us are still friends. Um, most of us still talk to each other from time to time, even though we're physically separated. A couple of times a year, there's some kind of an event, and we gather up, and we all see each other and see each other's families and have fun. It is still a family. So how do you get to know these guys? You know, one interview I really love was Greg Dystra from Pixar, and talking about the animation and talking about the way of creating a feeling through a character and those tiny elements that are needed. We do often, you know, refer to whatever actor is going to be doing the voice, but but more often than not, it's it's that actually happens too late in the process and we've already designed the character, but the and and maybe they're already built and articulated or rigged. Uh, that's when the controls are put into the the digital model. Um, 
but uh, but but it's still those actors can still influence basically the design because as the animators uh, who are the ones moving you know this stuff making making those characters act uh, they can refer to those actors um, that are playing the part and and if there's cool little things that they do uh, they're very distinctive to them that might make its way into the character especially um, uh, stuff that they're doing during the performance because we we do videotape. Uh, the actors while they're doing their voice recordings. And so whatever little thing they might do during that time might make its way into uh, the final animation. But uh, for for Bob, for instance, we uh, we actually just used each other largely. Uh, you know, we had we had the original designs that, that Tony Ficilli and Teddy Newton and, and, you know, Lou had all worked out. Uh, and then my original sculptures uh, from that, um, but then we did. We had to, in addition to the face, we had to start figuring out what we were going to do with their muscles. You know, this is a movie that not only had normal humans, but they had humans in tight, you know, yeah. uh, costumes. Yeah. So everything was going to be shown off. And so we had to. Uh, I remember Tony, Tony Facilli, and I got into uh, an, uh, one of the offices uh, and just started discussing anatomy and how how bio, how biomechanics works and how we could basically caricature that just like we do the designs for a, a character's basic form you know and so we would we would flex our forearm and 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 decide oh this can be represented with just one shape um, but it's really important it deforms this way when the hand comes up and and so on and so forth and we just kind of went through the uh, the human body that way and uh, uh, we did take uh, pictures of people and we did a lot more of that on ratatouille um, but we we do a lot with just people around the studio, and luckily Pixar's population uh, was continuing to get you know bigger and bigger, and so we had a lot of people to choose from, and we still do that today. Uh, you know, if, if we're looking for a particular kind of person, we'll see if there's someone at Pixar that can that can fit that kind of description. So Adam, you were telling me earlier that you had a big collection, a big backlog of interviews. Who have you got coming up? So one person that's in the background that I'm looking forward to getting out is John Markoff. So John Markoff, a very famous technology journalist, and did a really good book on how counterculture informed and helped shape the PC revolution that came out of Silicon Valley. And that book was called What the Dormouse Said. So we've got John on talking about that. We've got Dag Spicer from the Computer History Museum in california uh he's another one that's coming up and then we've also got quite a so for the last talking in 2019 10 years plus really it was from the moment i picked up a laser scanner i became curious uh by it we've actually got a lot of the early developers of commercial laser scanning systems coming up because i'm about to drop at some point in 2019 uh history of laser scanning which has been done for the first time and it's taken me 10 years to do it right so we've got a lot of stuff coming up that's going to be very very interesting yeah because i also have quite a few contacts um here in nottingham and in england and i was thinking maybe of doing a few interviews of those and then we could review them as well so we could get a mix of a kind of transatlantic technology pioneers and technologists well i think that's that's the really nice thing I've found about doing this podcast is it's such a flexible media to work in that there's room to do that. And I think the other thing as well, 
um, that's really interesting about giving that fresh sort of angle to things by doing stuff like that is you you learn new stuff that's useful and stick with you, right? Um, one of the interviews I keep coming back to, and it's kind of weird now because I actually went and met up with him at NVIDIA back in 2018, is John Matheson, who was the hardware designer for the Atari Jaguar system. And he also did the new one as well. One of the reasons I find it weird is because that system, unbeknownst to me until I met out with John, had a very clear and deep impact on what I do now with laser scanning in terms of not just the hardware, but also kind of what they were trying to, I guess the image they were trying to project at the time, or maybe this idea of the future and where the technology mm. for gaming could have gone at that point in time with the, the 64-bit at the time of the great 16-bit systems. Um, but when I met up with him, ironically enough, we only spoke about the Jaguar probably about four or five minutes and we ended up talking more about the automotive industry because he now works with some of the sensors that I use. In fact, when he was showing me around NVIDIA, pretty cool building, it's shaped like a polygon. So it's like, it's really difficult to navigate around because they're nice. a right angle. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, fully recommend it. You know, he took me to see a self-driving race car because there's actually a self-driving okay. race car lead that... Um, yeah, because that, that's a, a real new area of industry, isn't it? The self-driving cars. Yeah. And they have been trying to do that since like the 70s as well. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And he was he was showing me around and he's like, oh yeah, so here's a self-driving car and I'm looking around it and I'm like, oh, it's, so these Velodine sensors then in this thing, are they? And he kind of looked at me, he's like, oh, how do you know that? So it's it's funny how it, it, was, it was kind of, it was spooky in a good way in the sense of, oh, I didn't realize that what you did back in the day had such an influence on me. You know? We live in a huge world, but it yep. all seems to be somehow connected. Well, I think we're on a lot more services at the moment. So um, I've just been submitting us to Stitcher and um, there's quite a few services like Tuned In uh, that Remotely Interested should be available now. And we've done a bit of optimization on the um, old iTunes as well. So we would love it if you guys could drop some iTunes reviews, uh, share the podcast and we will be out monthly now. So are we going to be releasing in the first week of the month? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. One of the reasons why you're here is to make sure I'm a good boy and we actually get them out. So, <laughs> Yeah, so keep, keep you on track. So thanks so much for listening to this introduction. And the next episode will be an interview with Adam and then we'll review it afterwards. Cheers, guys. On to the next phase.